0: And it is my pleasure to have him here to talk about his latest work, Alexander Hamilton. Ron Cherno, thanks so much for joining us. It's
1: a pleasure to be with you, Jeff.
0: Why Alexander Hamilton?
1: Well, you know, I had done all of these biographies of Gilded Age moguls, and I felt that I was becoming typecast as the <laughs> tycoon guy. And I'm very interested in business and finance, and there's certainly plenty in the life of Alexander Hamilton. But I also felt that in doing Hamilton, he would carry back to the origins of the um, American government and business system, and that his was one of those—he um, was one of those universal geniuses of the 18th century whose mind touched on every conceivable subject and who seemed to be at the center of everything going on during the formative years of the American Republic.
0: The one thing that comes across so powerfully in this book and when one looks at Hamilton's life is the degree to which he was both visionary in terms of understanding what America's potential was and and, and reflected much of what, what we have today, from an economic point of view, Mm -hmm. but also the way in which he was fundamentally different in that from some of the other Founding Fathers.
1: Yeah, you know, um, Hamilton was um, really a visionary person on the economic side at a time when Jefferson foresaw a nation of independent yeoman farmers and weak central uh, government and states' rights. Hamilton not only favored a strong central government and a strong presidency and a liberal interpretation of the Constitution, but he foresaw a very different nature, one that would have agriculture, but also would have um, large cities, manufacturing, stock exchanges, banks, corporations. And we take these things for granted today, but at the time they were considered rather scary, futuristic stuff. Uh And so anybody advocating such practices um, was bound to be demonized, because Jefferson, Madison, even Adams, for instance, considered Banks' evil institutions.
0: But Adams, I suppose, of those three, was the closest to understanding and to being in line, it seems, with Hamilton's vision.
1: Yeah, in a way, um, it's, it's surprising when, um, when Adams deviates. They are nominally members of, uh, of the same uh, party, the Federalists, and that's one of the reasons right. that the two end up uh, clashing. Because they're vying for control of the uh, of, of the party, um, but a- Adams does come from this mercantile trading uh, New England society that is um, certainly much much closer to Hamilton's vision than the South, which was dominated by large slave plantations.
0: Mm-hmm. In many ways, the divisions. I mean, you know, m- much has been made about this when when, when John Adams was sort of uh, talked about a lot a couple of years ago that the divisions at that time between Hamilton and Adams, kind of on one side, Madison and Jefferson on the other, reflect many of the divisions that we still see in the country today.
1: Yeah, you know, th- these are eternal conflicts um, in American society um, between um, strong states uh, versus a strong central government, um, whether we should, uh, who should run foreign policy, either the Senate or the, uh, the President, how... Independent a judiciary. Uh, should uh, we have these are age-old questions, and uh, each generation reconsiders them anew.
0: Of course, the one other aspect of Hamilton that that differs from some of these other founding fathers is that he never really made a bid for the presidency.
1: Yeah, he was extraordinarily ambitious, but the glittering prize eludes him. He actually was qualified, even though he was the only foreign-born. Uh founding father, because there is, if you look in the Constitution, there is a loophole that if you were a citizen at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, even if you had been born as Hamilton was in the Caribbean, uh, you were eligible. I think what it is with Hamilton, Hamilton was the greatest policymaker we ever had. He was certainly not the greatest politician. Uh He was too brash, he was too outspoken, and he was too uncompromising. And when you have someone who is that brilliant and uncompromising, He's going to make a lot of friends, and he's also going to make a lot of enemies, and that was abundantly true for Hamilton.
0: Hamilton's personal life was also a subject of uh, some speculation and turmoil at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a, a someone for all well, his genius of, of very uh, questionable uh, judgment at, at moments when he's Treasury Secretary, at the height of his powers, when he's the most controversial man in America. A beautiful young 23-year-old woman named Mariah Reynolds knocks on his door one night, tells him a tale that she has been abandoned by her cruel husband and asks for financial aid. Hamilton, for an entire year, has an adulterous affair with Mrs. Reynolds. And then when Mr. Reynolds reappears, Hamilton begins to fork over blackmail money to him. In the end, Hamilton publishes a 95-page pamphlet. Um, giving a blow-by-blow account of the affair because his enemies said that he'd been paying the Black Bell money for financial connivance, and he said, Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I was having an adulterous affair with Mrs. Reynolds. It was the first grade sex
0: scandal.
1: <laughs> Long before Bill and Monica, we had Alexandra and Mariah.
0: Okay. Talk a little about the relationship between Hamilton and Jefferson. I mean, that, that division, that divide is at, at the core of so many issues in america today
1: yeah american american life just splits right down the middle again jefferson has this vision of a, an agrarian eden hamilton perceives this powerful urban manufacturing society their visions could not have been more unlike but also their personalities could uh-huh. not have been more unlike uh, jefferson was secretary of state in washington's first administration hamilton was treasury secretary and the two men had really clashing personalities. We know Jefferson for the beautiful, inspirational words of the Declaration of Independence, but he was actually he was a very shy, soft-spoken man. He didn't um, like to quarrel with people um, openly. He would simply make records in his diary. He would store up information for future use, so he would have Madison or somebody else Um, write uh, um, a blistering article about Hamilton. Hamilton loved to debate. Hamilton would debate at a moment's notice, and he was one of these frightening characters who can speak for hour after hour in perfectly worded paragraphs. And so Jefferson not only strongly dissented from Hamilton's view of America's future, but it terrified him of of someone of Hamilton's brilliance was leading the opposition. And at one point he uh, writes a letter to Madison, and he says that Hamilton is a host, that is an army, uh-huh. unto himself.
0: Huh. Tell us a little bit about Hamilton's early childhood in, uh, in the Caribbean.
1: Oh, this is as dark and murky as it gets. This right. is almost the Dickensian childhood. He's born on the island of Nevis, this volcanic island in the Caribbean. He is illegitimate. His father... Biological father abandons the family when Alexander is 11. His mother suddenly dies of tropical fever when he's 13. He's then farmed out to a cousin who commits suicide a year later. And at age 14, he suddenly finds himself this penniless, illegitimate orphan working in a trading house on St. Croix. Now, the wonder of Alexander Hamilton and what makes this one of the great uh, American stories when he's 17, he's toiling away as this deeply frustrated clerk at a trading house in St. Croix. Five years later, he is aide-de-camp to George Washington, huh. and it's one of the most miraculous, I <laughs> think to say, one of the most miraculous transformations in American political history.:
0: and, and how much of this is due to what we would consider today luck, and how much to really Hamilton's brilliance?
1: I think a lot. To his brilliance, um, uh, Hamilton um, was intelligent to the point of genius. He was largely self-taught. He did a couple of years uh, at King's College in Lower Manhattan, renamed Columbia, uh, after the, the war. But basically, he's teaching himself even during the Revolution. He's carrying around these heavy volumes, giving himself a crash course in history and politics and finance. And he was a person of such brilliance that the one constant throughout his career... Is that everybody he meets within minutes of meeting Alexander Hamilton recognizes that there is something extraordinary about the intelligence and energy and charm of this guy. When he wants to win over people, he seems to have this capacity from the moment he sets foot in North America to enlist very powerful patrons on his behalf. And even though, you know, I was, I was saying before he was so um, argumentative, mm-hmm. but he had a lot of people who adored him.
0: Right, right. Tell us a little bit about Hamilton. What did his views, what did he see? What was he able to see in the future of America that others were not? Why did he get it right?
1: I think one reason that he got it right, all of the founders were interested and foresaw America being a great and powerful nation. They realized that we would have a large population, we were rich in resources. Uh, we would have a large land area. Hamilton, much more than the others, closely studied um, European precedent, so that he tried to figure out um, what was the basis of British power, Dutch power, French power, and what he saw was that the um, the military and strategic power was based on economic power, and the economic power, in turn, was based on credit. That is. You could win more battlefields in the bond market than you could in the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could raise money, uh, that that would give you the, uh, the, the capital to become a great maritime power. It would give you liquid capital to finance industry and trade and uh, investment. And uh, so there's a way, actually, in which Hamilton is looking backward at the experience of some of the European countries as a way of projecting forward America's future, and of course, um, Jefferson's—you um, know—words were uh, so beautiful. His his picture of America's uh, rural future was so pretty. But the world that we inhabit today exactly resembles Hamilton's world, but uh, not Jefferson's.
0: Right. I mean, in retro—I mean, obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But in retrospect, as you look at this. It, 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 it's hard to imagine that anybody could have bought into the, the Jeffersonian vision that we would just remain an agrarian society, that, that, that Hamilton foresaw in the future of America the kind of, of manufacturing and mercantile future that was, was Europe.
1: Well, I think you know, people were reflecting their um, interests, I think, that, uh, that vision. Of in their small yeoman farmers, even at the time, it was kind of a bit of a cover story for the slave economy mm. um, of the uh, of the South. Most white males in Virginia did not own slaves; did not even own land. Um right. And but it was a way, I think, for the slave owners. And, and Jefferson owned two hundred slaves. Madison owned one hundred thirty uh, slaves. I think it was a way for them to, to seize the moral high ground. And I argue in in my book, to kind of focus all of the critical scrutiny on the northern system, say Uh banks are evil, stock exchanges are evil, because no one was talking about slavery. Slavery was considered, after the Constitutional Convention, such a divisive issue that it was ruled off-limits in terms of political discussion. So what was left to discuss? Hamilton's system.
0: Right. How did Hamilton view slavery?
1: Hamilton, this was one of the most surprising things for me because he has this, you know, image of a kind of snob and aristocrat. Most passionate abolitionist of all the founding fathers, bar none. Uh, during the American Revolution, he champions a very courageous plan uh, that any slave who is willing to pick up a musket for the Continental Army will be freed. Plan voted down, although there were um, a lot of uh, blacks who did serve in the Continental Army. After the war, Hamilton co-founds the first abolitionist society in New York. (coughs) Excuse me. Spends a lot of time as a lawyer representing blacks who have been kidnapped off the streets of New York by their former masters who are trying to send them back into slavery. His record is absolutely uh, consistent as um, an
0: abolitionist. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to Adams, because on the surface, uh, Hamilton and Adams should have been uh, drawn together, and of course the rivalry between them became intense. Tell us a little about that relationship.
1: Yeah, they had you know, so much in, in common. They were members of the same uh, party. This is kind of an unfortunate uh, episode in the life of both men. Um, when Washington was president, Hamilton, as treasury secretary, was far and away the most powerful person in the administration. John Adams was vice president and essentially excluded from the inner council. Now, remember, John Adams was a generation older than um, Adams. I mean, that uh, Adams was a generation older than than Hamilton. Uh-huh. So he looked at Hamilton as a young upstart. Because well, Adams was right when when um, Hamilton was an undergraduate in New York. John Adams was the leading figure at the Continental Congress. <coughs> So Adams felt that by right he should succeed Washington, which he uh, did. But he um, thought that Hamilton had connived to deny him the presidency. There's some truth to that. And so he then completely, but completely, excluded Hamilton from any access to uh, his administration. But then it turned out that the three leading cabinet officers were in fact great admirers of hamilton and communicated frequently with hamilton to the point where adams decides that his cabinet is secretly controlled by the evil alexander hamilton uh, from new york Um, and they have a terrible feud hamilton publishes a savage open letter attacking adams during the 1800 campaign it was a terrible decision by Hamilton it damaged his career much more than John Adams and needless to say there was there was never a reconciliation never any love lost again
0: right we know virtually nothing about uh, Elizabeth Hamilton
1: yeah this was one of my main aims in in the book because um, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton every school child knows Martha Washington uh, Dolly Madison Abigail Adams but if you say Eliza Hamilton you get a blank. And in fact, she was a wonderful woman. She actually lived for 50 years after the duel, 50 year oh. widowhood. She died in 1854, almost the eve of the Civil War. And she actually uh, uh, started and ran the first orphanage in New York for almost 30 years. She was a, a wonderful woman, uh, deeply religious, uh, deeply generous, but she was so self effacing that she spent her final decades lovingly preserving every paper that her husband had written while burning all of her own. And so I just thought she was such a terrific person that since she had tried to edit herself out of the story that I would try to edit her mm-hmm. back into it.
0: In researching this book you found a lot of papers and some essays, a collection of essays that, that Hamilton had written. Tell us about those.
1: Yeah, I actually discovered fifty different articles and essays he had written. I discovered, for instance, that um, when he first came to New York, he continued to be a stringer, believe it or not, for the St. Croix newspaper, the Royal Danish American Gazette. So it lets us know that he, for instance, was crossing the East River with Washington after the famous, you know, nighttime retreat after the Battle of Brooklyn. The most interesting series of essays during the 1796 campaign, the Phocian essays, suggests that Hamilton knew about, uh, or may have known about, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, because he writes this essay mocking Jefferson's views. Jefferson thought that blacks were racially, uh, genetically inferior, which Hamilton did not. Uh, So he's mocking Jefferson's views. He's mocking Jefferson's view that we should, if we ever free the slaves, that we should then transport them to another country, um, because Jefferson was afraid of mingling between blacks and whites. And um, Hamilton, with rather heavy sarcasm, says, surely uh, Mr. Jefferson knows from personal experience um, the uh, racial staining that can take place between masters and slaves while they're still here. Um, so I think that he may have known about it, uh, and it's interesting that um, among other <laughs> different parallels in the war between Jefferson and uh, Hamilton, uh, each man had his own sexual scandal to account for.
0: Right. I want to talk about the specific things that, that Hamilton contributed uh, in terms of our banking system, in terms sure. of taxation, in terms of the idea of national debt being uh, not such a bad thing in Hamilton's view. Tell us a little about that.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, this is a man who has to invent the American government from scratch. We had no income taxes. We had only um, uh, import duties, so Hamilton had to create the customs service. No small thing. We had to create lighthouses and, and beacons and buoys. You have to stop smuggling, which means that you have to create a fleet of ships, which means he started the Coast Guard. He creates the first tax system, the first budget system. He creates the first uh, central bank. Most important of all, he takes this massive debt that we had inherited from the Revolutionary War, which had made us the third world deadbeat of the time, and he creates a program to pay it off to the point where by the time he leaves office, we're, instead of being the steady nation, we're one of the most creditworthy nations in the world. And so he really establishes our economic standing in the world by, while simultaneously laying the basis um, for the um, American financial and economic system.
0: You mm-hmm. also had a vision that, uh, and you, you, you alluded to this before, in terms of a manufacturing base and a mercantile system that would, would take the country into a very different future.
1: Yeah, you know, there was one day during the Revolution when um, Washington and Hamilton had a picnic by the Great Falls of the Passaic, it's sort of this beautiful um, um, waterfall uh, not too far from New York. And he returned to that spot years later and decided that he was going to create this futuristic manufacturing city with some of the first textile plants, and then they would branch out into other kinds of manufacturing. It was a bit of a fiasco in the early years, but in fact, on that spot and from that project sprang the city of Patterson, New Jersey, which did become a great industrial city, still the third largest uh, city in New Jersey, and that all traces back something that Hamilton created called the Society for Establishing Useful Manufactures, just one of, you know, 50 extraordinary <laughs> things that this guy did.
0: Right. Also, our, our, the, the whole idea of federal taxation was something that, that Hamilton created anew.
1: Yeah, he also had to um, impose um, taxes on uh, uh, distilled spirits, uh, i.e. whiskey, um, and in order to pay off the Revolutionary War debt. And there were a lot of parts of the country, particularly out in western Pennsylvania, where people were very attached to their, um, whiskey, to their home stills and favorite brews, And so we had the whiskey rebellion, because the, the, this is farmers. There was also an economic basis. The farmers would, um, convert their, their grain into alcohol, and it was very profitable. Uh, way to, uh, uh, to ship it. And so Hamilton and Washington lead an army of uh, 12, 13,000 men out to western Pennsylvania to put down the revolt of these thirsty moonshiners.
0: Mm-hmm. The whole idea, one of, one of the particularly interesting things was this idea of the carriage tax and, and, and Hamilton having to go to the U.S. Supreme Court at the time to defend this, this federal tax.
1: Yeah, it was actually um, it was a tax that he had uh, introduced. He was no longer Treasury Secretary. He was now a lawyer in New Mm -hmm. York, Um, and he went to the Supreme Court. It was actually the first time uh, that he had argued a case before the Supreme Court. And as I recall, I think that that case was the first time uh, that the issue of the court ruling. a decision
0: unconstitutional uh, right. came up. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about Hamilton's relationship with Washington. Uh, it was certainly a close relationship, and one of the things that you write about is Hamilton's involvement uh, in drafting Washington's farewell address.
1: Yeah, Hamilton actually wrote the farewell address, and what I mean by that is Washington gave him different you know, headings and sort of gave him the essential ideas and Hamilton then drafted it. That's actually the way that they worked together during the Revolutionary War, when Hamilton was his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. But Hamilton wrote most of the um, famous uh, uh, speech, but he couldn't have done it without, I think, Washington's uh, uh, guides. Now, the relationship between them is fascinating um, because they're... (laughs) Well, you have to picture it. Washington was 23 years older. He was seven inches taller. Um, the relationship has sometimes been described as father son. I actually found that there was tremendous mutual um, respect, but it could be a stormy relationship. Um, Hamilton, when he worked for Washington as a young man during the Revolution, uh, instead of finding Washington this rather um, uh, granite figure that we uh, imagine, he found Washington very moody and snappish and finally, after four years, said, I can't take his moods anymore. I mean, this is not the way that we picture Washington, but it confirms the old adage that no man is a hero to his (laughs) valet. And uh, I think it's only in their later years, in the two or three years before Washington uh, dies in 1799, that you can begin to see real warmth and affection entering into the correspondence. But they were an amazingly productive... Whatever the personal differences,
0: right? Tell us a little about uh, Aaron Burr and Hamilton and uh, the events that would lead to Alexander Hamilton's demise.
1: Well, Hamilton and Burr lead oddly parallel lives. That is, they are both—they're both around five, six. They were born a year apart. They were both effectively orphaned. Burr came from an illustrious family, but his parents, his grandparents, died when he was an infant. They're both heroic young colonels during the Revolution. They become young lawyers in New York almost within months of each other after the war. They're actually living at opposite ends of the same street, Wall Street. They're just living a few um, blocks apart. Uh, As uh, young lawyers in New York, uh, sometimes they argue cases together. Sometimes they're on the opposite side of cases. They actually were friends and even sometimes colleagues um, over the next 25 years. The problem was that politically they take different paths and they're completely different kinds of political personalities. That uh, Hamilton, as outspoken and as prolific a writer and speaker as we've ever had in American public life, Burr, very secretive and crafty, and to Hamilton's mind, a man who changes his political convictions depending upon which way the wind is blowing, and Hamilton was not shy about expressing his views about Burr, and Burr finally, in 1804, called him to the fields of honor for one of those opinions.
0: Uh-huh. And tell us about that.
1: Well, they, you know, um, rode across July 11th, um, 1804, we're about to celebrate the 200th anniversary. Um, Hamilton, Hamilton's son had died in the duel two and a half years earlier, Hamilton, who had been a believer in duels, he was a man of honor, um, had turned against dueling, but he felt, despite that, that he couldn't turn down the duel without appearing to be a coward buckling into Burr. So he decided that he would go to the dueling ground. He would face fire, but he would waste his shot. That is, he would fire into the air. Um, Burr, Apparently did not have the same intention. Burr <laughs> right. did shot. We don't know if he shot to kill, but he certainly shot at least to wound. And as it turned out, he did kill him.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us about the reaction to that at the time within the country. Uh,
1: well, I mean, you know, there was outrage in, 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 in the North. There was horror. There was uh, Hamilton's funeral was the biggest event in the history of the city up until that uh, time. Burr was indicted for murder. In New York and New Jersey. Now, this is a man who was vice president at mm-hmm. the time. Right. Um, he flees south. He's he's on the lam from the law. He hides out in the south for a while. Begins to work his way back north. He's fated as a hero in a lot of cities. And then, believe it or not, while indicted for murder in two states, as vice president, he presides over a famous impeachment trial of a Supreme Court judge that was taking place in the Senate. And people said he did a very commendable job. Hamilton's friends, the Federalists, were just um, thunderstruck mm-hmm. to see Aaron Burr presiding over the <laughs> trial while wanted for uh, murder. And then, of course, Burr uh, in, in later years was uh, accused of treason. He was acquitted, but then he flees to Europe. Uh, Aaron Burr never had a dull moment, nor did Hamilton. Mm.
0: In terms of, of Hamilton's contemporaries, who were the people that he had the, the most simpatico with? Who were, who were the people that were his trusted allies?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, in the Federalist uh, Party, uh, certainly um, George Washington and uh, John Jay and uh, Governor Morris, who drafted the right. great preamble to the Constitution, and, um, and, and Rufus King, almost all of the leading Federalists of the, uh, of the day of course he had to name the opposition is to name a pretty formidable group because right. you're talking uh, jefferson madison um, monroe uh... john quincy adams you know just uh, and and of course john adams himself so presidents two through six
0: right. <laughs>
1: don't share the opinion of president number one about hamilton which was a small problem for hamilton
0: but in fact uh, as we look at the country today uh... Hamilton's influence, as you point out in this book, Hamilton's influence is uh, more or less the prevailing one.
1: Yeah, you know, there's no great monument to Hamilton uh, in in Washington, and, uh, and and George Will once made the the, the comment. Uh, he said, if you want to uh, find Hamilton's monument instead of going to Washington, he said, just look around you; it's everywhere. <laughs> it's called America. So I think that um, Hamilton, if given the choice uh, of the uh, the marble monument in in Washington or the lasting influence, I think, would have opted for the latter.
0: Ron Chernow. His book is Alexander Hamilton. Ron, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: It's a pleasure. I wish I could be there with you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it.
1: Okay.